0: There are Bibles, dear church, all across the room. They look very much like this. If you don't have a Bible, would you take one of these and put it in your hands real quick? This, page 863 is the page that we'll be on. I'm going to get there here in just a moment. And What, we're, what Jason just read, what we're going to walk through this morning, I am a project, uh exaggerator. Uh, I can do that. I promise you when I tell you that the story that Jason just read over you uh, the world changed because of what took place in this, just those nine verses. I'll show you what I mean here in just a moment. This is a story about conversion. Saul was this way, and after what you just read with Jason, he is very different. We'll, get, we'll really see that difference in a couple of weeks as we chase down the rest of Acts chapter 9. This is a story about conversion, one of the most remarkable conversion stories uh, in the history of the world. There's a painting, which I think is a couple, next maybe slide or two ahead. There it is. This is a painting by a guy named Caravaggio of uh, this conversion. It's a very chaotic painting. It's a very chaotic scene. Caravaggio, in between painting pictures of, of biblical scenes, would get in drunken fights with people, and he murdered more than one person. Caravaggio. There's that. How's that for a Sunday morning? The guy who painted this painting. And many like it. The first verse of Acts chapter 9 says that Saul was breathing out threats and murder. When I talk to people about their relationship with God and occupational hazard, I, I do that from time to time. Talk to people about those things. Well, I, I'm, I'm good. You know, I never killed anybody. Caravaggio can't say that. Saul's breathing out threats and murder. Does Saul ever actually kill anybody? I don't know, but he was threatening to. I, I guarantee you, dear church, if I were to just pull, just scan the room, uh, not a lot of murderers in our midst. I'm just guessing that this morning. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. And so if, if you and I, this is a story about Saul going to Damascus, believing that he's in the right, he's breathing out threats and murder, believing that he's in the right, and everything in his life drastically changes in just a few moments of time. I couldn't help but notice throughout the course of our worship this morning, our worship with music this morning, we're going to worship God and his word here in the next few minutes, how much of Paul's words we sang. The very same person Breathing out threats and murder in Acts 9 verse 1 is the person who said, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. Not in those exact words, but he said that. i I resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul said. More on that in the coming weeks. In Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8 comes before Acts chapter 9. You're welcome. In Acts chapter 8, we end, we ended last week with Philip on his way north. He is literally snatched away by the Holy Spirit and goes to a place called Azotus on his way to Caesarea, where, where he will be for 20 years. We'll meet him again in Acts chapter 21. Stay tuned. Next year we'll get to Acts 21. And Philip is still there, 20, he's got a family and the whole thing. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Saul sets out for Damascus. If you have a map in your Bible, and you probably do have maps in some of your Bibles or on your phones or wherever you have this morning, Caesarea is way far north. Damascus, where Saul is heading, is also a real place to the north and east of where Philip was going. And Saul sets out to undo or actively work against all the things that Philip, the evangelist, was doing. Look at Acts 9 Starting in verse 1, Acts 9 begins with contrast. But Saul, that's a very important word in the Bible, but. But Saul, Philip has this remarkable evangelistic mission and he's working working with remarkable vigor to do it. He goes all the way up to Caesarea, carrying out, preaching all these villages of Samaria. He meets a eunuch all the way from Africa. This official, all the way from Africa, comes to Jerusalem and tells him about Jesus. Saul is actively working to oppose Philip's evangelism. He goes to Damascus. He is interrupted on the way. This is perhaps, again, church, the most famous conversion story of all time. In fact, you might know that to say you have a Damascus Road experience is a way of saying someone you've had a transformational experience. That comes from this story. That's why this morning's sermon is titled, The Way to Damascus. As we just sang a moment ago, I don't know if you've been to the river. After all the rain we've had this week, the river's coming to you, maybe. I don't know. But I don't know if you've been to the river in the way that we sang it. He is calling. Are you ready? We have this debt that we could never pay ourselves. And Jesus Christ came into the world to do that. That's why the gospel is good news. He did for you what you can't do for yourself. And so God is calling. God is about to call this person, Saul. In your mind this morning, as you imagine a person far from God, maybe it won't be hard for you to imagine that, person very far from God, maybe in your family, maybe someone that you work with, I don't know. Saul, I guarantee you, is farther down the line than the person that you're imagining. And this morning's message is about this person's life being utterly transformed. There's great hope in that, church. No one is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. Do you believe that? It's true. No one is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. And the person that you feel, hear me, lovingly, the person you feel is least deserving of God's forgiveness is not beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. And that's maybe one of the takeaways from this passage. He, Jesus said, unless a person is born again, they can't see the kingdom of God. The first song we think this morning was called, Who You Say I Am. That, by the way, is true both ways. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Maybe you are. Maybe you've been born again. Maybe you, went, maybe you have said to Jesus, you've said to God, Because of what Christ has done, God, I believe that what Jesus did for me is enough, totally. My sins can be forgiven, and I am a child of God. If you have done that, if you have confessed with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. And if that's true of you, then you are who God says you are. You are a child of God. However, if you have never bowed the knee to Jesus, if you feel like you are good enough in yourself for God— to give you salvation because you're a good person. You ever killed anybody? I do everything right. I'm a good person, Pastor Steve. I'm sure you are. But you're not morally perfect like Jesus Christ was. And so you are who the Bible says you are too, in need of salvation, in need of a transformation like the one Saul is about to experience. So that who I say, who you say I am, is true on both fronts. Either you are a child of God, dear church, or you're not. Either you have been born again, that's the Bible's language, that's Jesus' language, not just Christian's language, that's Jesus' language. You must be born again. That's true of you or it isn't. And the call goes out to everyone this morning, have you been born again? Are you a new creation? That's what Paul goes on to say in Corinthians. More on that in a minute. Stronger language can hardly be imagined than being born again, new creation, in a sermon on this passage, Tim Keller talks about there's three elements of conversion. The third one we'll get to in a couple of weeks. But the first two are collision and darkness. And that's what you see here in this passage. Collision. Paul, Saul is confronted with this remarkable, the realization of what he's been doing. It's important for people to be confronted with the truth that always challenges a God of our own construction. For example... If you would say this morning, and maybe you would, Steve, you know, I work hard, I do good things, I give to the church, I'm here every Sunday, I'm a good person, I'm good. God surely is impressed by what I do. And probably he is, probably God is impressed with all of those things, but it's not enough to get you. The booster rockets of your righteousness cannot escape the gravity of your sin, Jesus Christ has done that for you. That's why the gospel is good news. Why the gospel gives us rest. 1 John 3.20 says, God is greater than your heart. I love that verse. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Whenever your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. A heart that makes a God of your own construction that's either really happy with you or really unhappy with you. Saul was brought to the utter end of himself. i got to get in the passage here. I'm anxious to get in. Here we go. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest. If you have those Bibles still out and and, uh, with you, those pew Bibles like this, turn right, if you would, please, over to page, or you can go in your own Bibles. Go to Romans chapter 1. In your pew Bibles, it's, it's page 883. What is the first word of the letter to Romans? Paul. Okay, keep going right after Romans to 1 Corinthians. What's the first word of 1 Corinthians, class? Paul. Okay, keep going. After 1 Corinthians is? You, you guessed it. What's the first word of 2 Corinthians? Paul. The same person that you are about to meet in this passage. Or to see again. We met him under some tragic circumstances a few Sundays ago, when he was there at Stephen's murder saying, this is good, this is a good thing to murder this person. That's the guy who wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. God can do anything. Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. When I say that this man's conversion changed the world, that's what I mean. That's what God means. Be encouraged by that this morning, dear church. Let your faith be strengthened by the fact that God can do literally anything no one is beyond the reach of God's grace Paul is breathing threats and murder against those who follow Jesus he is literally menacing them I think menace is a crime to menace someone to make them feel unsafe Saul is deliberately doing it he's doing it with the blessing of the high priest menacing people The word for murder here is the word used in Mark 7 in a long list of things that defile a person. The the popular thought of the day, Saul's mind as a Pharisee, Saul's mind would say, all these things coming in from the outside make a person unclean, like the food that you eat. And Jesus says, no. What comes from the inside makes a person unclean. Threats, lies, deceit, murder. And Saul is on that list here. It's also, by the way, used to describe Barabbas The person at the trial of Christ who was released in favor of Jesus by the mob. It's also used in Romans 1 of a person who is given over by God to a life that's debased and empty. Saul is threatening those who are ultimately connected to the Lord. Look, against the disciples of the Lord. A disciple is a follower, one who follows. This is how Luke refers to Jesus he's the Lord. And Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon fashioned against you shall succeed. Even Saul's threats and murder don't succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me declares the Lord. Again, we last saw this person, Saul, at the murder of Stephen, where he was approving what was going on. It seems as though now Saul has taken the lead, in pursuing the scattered church that Pastor Mike was talking about a couple Sundays ago. He is taking the lead on pursuing these folks. As far as Damascus, and if you have a map in your Bible, Damascus is a long way away from Jerusalem, and Saul went that far. Saul went all the way to Toledo, pursuing the disciples of the Lord. That's about what we're talking about. He didn't go down to Harlan. He was going to Toledo. He was determined. He was zealous. More on that in a minute. Both Stephen and Saul, one commentator said, realized that the new order and the old were incompatible. Stephen argued the new has come, so the old's got to go. Saul's point was the old must stay, therefore the new must go. And he was working actively against it. In Galatians 1, these are Saul's words about himself. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Saul was zealous, he was an A student, he was the valedictorian of Judaism. In his own admission, a student of Gamaliel, he went to the Harvard of Judaism. Gamaliel, more from him later as well. Saul operates with no mercy. Verse 2, he asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He intends to prosecute all those who are connected to Jesus, despite their social status, their gender, all of those things. Saul does not care. Men and women dragged away, bound to Jerusalem, a long way away. This is scary stuff, and he's determined. He's going a long way to carry it out. And then, verse three. Verse three. Now, As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. I couldn't help but notice that we have in verse 2, the way, and now we have in verse 3, his way. The way and Saul's way are very different, and those ways, forgive me, are about to merge. This light is from heaven, we learn later on in Acts by the way, Saul tells this story over and over again in Acts. He can't stop talking about it, which means it's an historical event. Saul wasn't, he didn't have a hallucination. He, has a real, he really recalls this event three other times in the book of Acts. We will learn later on in Acts this light happens at noon. That's how great the light was. It happens at the brightest part of the day. It must have been an otherworldly light. Light in the Bible is everywhere associated with the Lord in the scriptures. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? This is God's answer to the mistreatment of the disciples of his son, a bright light from heaven. I don't know, church. I don't know what the response from God will be in the meantime to your mistreatment in Jesus' name, your actual mistreatment in Jesus' name. If you have a hard time, across the street from me, our neighbors have six feet of water in their basement. That's just, they had a bad week. That's not mistreatment in Jesus' name. It's just a lot of water in a short amount of time and nowhere to go, except their basement. But when you have a hard time in Jesus' name, mistreatment in Jesus' name, know that God will ultimately intervene on your behalf. In the meantime, he doesn't intervene and stop Stephen from being murdered. Saul will end the New Testament, Paul will talk about his unbelievable, more on that in two weeks as well, his remarkable suffering in Jesus' name. It starts today, right now. So God may or may not save you from that suffering. This is review, but he will be with you in that suffering. I encourage you with that this morning. God's answer to the mistreatment of his disciples is to get in Saul's, to literally get in Saul's way and stop him from going to Damascus. Verse 4. And falling to the ground, that's what the painting um, that we showed you illustrated. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul falls to the ground in response to this supernatural encounter. This is Saul's collision with the truth. Saul had his own ideas about how his day was going to go. And this collision changes everything. This voice from heaven mentions Saul's name twice. Saul. Saul. It happens a lot in the Bible. It's to get someone's attention. This persecution he mentions here in verse 4, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To persecute, the word used for persecute there is to aggressively chase. Saul isn't, I'm sure I've used this phrase before. Again, he's not moseying after. He's not moseying after these disciples. He's aggressively pursuing them as fast as he can to hunt down, to pursue with all haste. This may not be the first time that Saul has heard Jesus' voice. Saul, is a young man, he probably was there to hear some of this mischief from Jesus during the course of his public ministry, but now, now he's set himself against what Christ has done. This is the last time, if you guys can hear, this is a remarkable thing. This is the last post-resurrection appearance of Jesus until he comes again. It's a momentous occasion a momentous occasion. Again, the world has changed. Verse 5, Saul recognizes the voice of the Lord. Who are you, Lord? Some commentators say that he just, it's like the word for sir. Who are you, sir? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe Saul has this remarkable encounter with Christ himself. One commentator says, The light Saul sees must have been strong. It's around noon when he encounters it. It would have reminded him of the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament. This accounts for Saul's question. Who are you, Lord? He couldn't mistake it. It wasn't just like, hey, it's a comet, you know. He knew exactly what it was. Who are you, Lord? Saul must have realized that he was in the presence of the Lord God, which is why all over the Bible, Saul's no exception. He falls to the ground. The use of the human earthly name in verse 5, Jesus, rather than a divine title, put everything into focus for Saul. Because Saul had, he had in his mind who this Jesus was. And Saul comes into personal contact with the resurrected Jesus, and everything about his whole life is crashing down around him. That's what encounter is, dear church. And I don't know where you find yourself this morning. I don't know if you find yourself familiar with Jesus. I don't know if you find yourself a fan of Jesus. I sure like the stories that that guy tells. Look at the flowers of the field. Stuff like that. Love your neighbor. That sounds nice. That sounds nice. Saul has a radical encounter, a confrontation with Jesus, and that's what happens before a person is converted. They have a radical, life-changing encounter along these lines. So we know from later on in the passage that Saul goes into three days of darkness, three days of nothing, no eating, no drinking, probably even no words. And, he has, and he's running through in his mind all these scriptures that he has known from a child all these things that he's known from Isaiah the prophet all those problems, and it's all coming it's all making sense to him now he's hearing it for the first time it's exactly what happened to me it's exactly what happened to me my family my mom my dad faithfully invested in me from when I for as long as I can remember with bible verse I t- mentioned this last week and the the, the day that my faith became the day that my faith became real and personal for me, all of those stories, all those songs, all those things that my mom had sung over me all became clear in a moment. God gave me faith to see. He gave me eyes to see. My mind, my heart was open. The eyes of my heart were enlightened. So what happens to Saul too. I think over these three days, Saul is just kind of, he's just thinking it over. All of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, New Covenant the suffering servant. Who is it? It's Jesus, the very one standing in front of me. He has a confrontation. Have you had a confrontation with Jesus? Or are you familiar with Jesus? Are you, he doesn't want that from you. He is the Lord, and lords demand surrender. And the great news, the great news, dear church, is that he's good, and he's kind, and he's loving. And so surrendering to someone like that is worth your whole life, is worth your whole life. Amen? I pray that's happened for you. Isaiah 63, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the greatness, the abundance of his steadfast love. Verse 9, Isaiah 63, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. This is a story of Israel and their suffering. Look at verse 5 again. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's how closely connected Jesus is to the suffering of his disciples. He feels it personally. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuted. The Apostle Paul will go on to say in his letters that when you become a follower of Jesus, that you become a part of the body of Christ— The body of Christ. What's the takeaway from this? Look at number one in your outline. I didn't didn't mention this earlier. Number one in your outline is that Jesus takes your suffering personally. Jesus takes your suffering. He experiences your suffering personally. And the evidence of that, dear church, is that we're called the body of Christ. So certainly he does that, but we need each other in that way too. That when one of us suffers, we all suffer. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you, church, for coming alongside those who suffer, those who need help. I'm so very proud of you. When you do that, you make much of Jesus, and you illustrate this verse. I am Jesus, he said, whom you are persecuting. He sees your suffering in his name, all of Saul's threats and murder, all of the arrests, all the families busted apart. He sees all of it. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus says, when you come to faith in Jesus church, he comes the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. Elsewhere in the Bible he is referred to as the Spirit of Jesus. That's how closely connected you are to him. a friend closer even than a brother. Be encouraged by that. That's 1 Corinthians 12:27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's what Paul will go on to say. The relationship, between the followers of Jesus and Jesus himself is so close that Saul's campaign was felt by Jesus personally. Remember Gamaliel's advice from Acts 5 a few weeks ago? He said, in the present case, I tell you, this is Acts five thirty-eight. keep away from these men, leave them alone, for if this plan of this undertaking is from man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. They took his advice, but Saul didn't. Saul didn't take Emilio's advice. Saul was like, I gotta go. We gotta stop. We gotta stamp him out. Saul had militias on their way to Damascus to forcibly arrest people and deport them all the way down to Jerusalem until Jesus steps in. Acts 9 in verse 6. Acts 9 and verse 6. The second point in your outline is from this verse. You will be told what you are to do. You will be told what you are to do. I have been told that confused people do nothing. I think that's probably true. I am unbelievably encouraged to know, church, that you will be told what you are to do. When you ask God, God, I want to serve you in this world, in my city, in my family, at my workplace, God, tell me what to do. He will tell you. He's eager to do that, but he can't pray that prayer for you. I can't pray it for you. Do it today. God, show me how I should be used in my circle of influence, and then he will tell you what to do. Through his people, through his spirit, through his word, he will do it. He's promised. Verse six, but rise Jesus says, and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men, verse 7, who were traveling with Saul, with him, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. In Jonah chapter 1, we see this very first two verses of the prophet Jonah, the story of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Arise. Jonah's being commissioned. Saul's being commissioned. Jesus immediately commissions Saul to his service. He will be told what to do. Come back in two weeks and you'll hear about it. God will never call you to do a thing. Please listen. Please hear me. God will never call you to do a thing and then not equip you to do that thing. I'm going to say that two more times just for you and for me too. God will never call you to do a thing and then not equip you to do that thing. God will never call you to do something and then not equip you to do the thing that he calls you to do. Believe it. Trust it. What is God calling you to do? I don't know, but I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see it. He has gone before you. He will do. He has gone before you to prepare the way. Verse 7. Saul's encounter with Jesus is intensely personal. It's intensely personal. Saul's companions don't have this experience. They hear the voice but see no one. Again, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says that he is qualified to be an apostle because he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus. First Corinthians 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Paul says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? By the way, bonus coverage, Saul. Saul is a Jewish name. The first king of Israel's name was Saul. Paul is a name that the Gentiles would know. So some people believe, and I'm, I'm inclined to agree with this, that his change of name from Saul... To Paul indicates his change of call or his commissioning to serve the Gentiles. Just FYI. Verse 8. Verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, verse 9, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul is knock, knocked down to the ground but now rises. He is acting in obedience to what Jesus said. Jesus says, rise. Saul rises. He gets up. His eyes are open. He sees nothing. Saul is being commissioned by the Lord. as a physical price to pay. He is struck blind. Saul is brought to the utter end of himself. He realizes, I, have, I had this whole idea about how my life was going to go, about what God was requiring of the world. And it's not true because there is the resurrected Jesus standing in front of me. He's come to the end of himself. He has, again, this collision. God has a plan and purpose for Saul, but the drastic confrontation by, this, by the Lord has physical consequences. He's seen and heard the risen Christ whom he was persecuting, but now doesn't speak or see for a long period of time. It doesn't say that he doesn't speak, but that's kind of implied. Verse 9, Saul spends three days in Damascus without the ability to see. He also undertakes the most extreme kind of fast, no food and no water for three days. Again, it's staggering to consider the transformation in Saul's life from verse 1 to verse 9. From verse 1 to verse 9. Threats and murder. Why? Because they followed Jesus. Just because they followed Jesus. And then Saul actually Sees Jesus on the road to Damascus, on the way to doing what he would, what he would set out to do. He is this remarkable example of God's interruption. Philippians 2 says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. God works in you to will and to work For His good pleasure, you will be told what you are to do. Um, Are the people in the band still in the room? If the if the band is still here, could you guys come back up and play the river again? If that's a that's a a change in our schedule, is the band able to do that again? Can you guys come back up and play the river and and close? Chad's coming. Come on, yeah, go get your guitar. I'll I'll wait for a minute. I'm going to ask the band to come back up, and we're going to play the river. The river is an invitation. To you. An invitation for you to come and follow Jesus. This is a story about conversion. And I'm grateful for the band's flexibility in listening to the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you have ever followed Jesus or not. If you've ever had this confrontation with him. We're going to stand together. Go ahead and stand with me, if you would, please, as we close. We're going to sing that song again. I'm going to ask the elders of the church to come down front. If you're an elder in the room, come down front and we're going to be available for you. for you need to come talk with someone and pray with them, we'll be ready to do that. As we sing, come. This, the call goes out. The call goes out to all of you, everyone in this room within the sound of my voice, to come follow Jesus. The elders will be down front. We're here to pray with you. We're here to serve you in that way. I'm going to talk for a moment while the band gets ready to do what I've asked them to do. Let's pray before we sing and pray that God would go before us. Consider this song an invitation for you to leave where you are, to come down front, to pray with us, and to follow after Jesus. Can we do that? Heavenly Father, we're going to sing again. We're going to sing about coming to the water. We're going to sing about coming to Jesus, to follow him. God, it is right that we should do so. It is right that we ...should cry out to you to be saved. Saul has this radical encounter, God, and he is interrupted on the way. He is interrupted uh, on on the direction that he was going. And he has this remarkable encounter with Jesus and his life has changed. God, we have seen this story. I don't know if there's anyone in this room that needs to come and to respond... ...in faith to the offer of salvation. Here's the offer that we're going to sing about. The offer of salvation, God, is that your son Jesus... ...has done everything necessary for our salvation... And when we respond and say, yes, God, I believe that. I believe that my sin debt is too great, no matter how good I think I am. Like Saul, I've come to the end of myself, and I realize I can't do it myself. God, I pray that you would give faith, you'd activate faith in the lives of people in this room that need to come and to pray, maybe to be saved, maybe to be encouraged, whatever reason. God, give us the faith to believe and to respond to you in the right way. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.